Hello and welcome to episode 53 of Nerd Explosion. We have a Marvel-packed episode because we're covering both Spider-Man and Hawkeye this week, as well as the newest episodes of Stone Ocean that hit Netflix. We're covering episodes 6 through 8. And with me to cover all of this fun stuff is my co-host, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? Well, happy the uh, semester is over. Uh, happy holidays and Merry Christmas to everyone listening as we are recording this two days before Christmas and holy crap. Do we have a, do we have some good stuff to talk about now? We do say that a lot, but this time like that statement is really apparent because dear God. Yeah. And of course, before we get into our movie and show discussion, by the time that our, that we record next week's episode, the book of Boba Fett will already be out. And I imagine that Sean is quite excited for that being the star Wars nerd. He is. Oh, yes. I am extremely excited. It, December the December 29th has been on my calendar for a very long time when it comes to this show. And, oh, boy, I, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Yeah. But, of course, Star Wars will have to wait another week because we have a lot of Marvel to talk about. And I don't know about you, but we had a new Spider-Man movie. And it was nice you did? to actually like the new Spider-Man movie for once. <laughs> we had a spider-man movie i did not know that yeah it's, it's i know it surprised me too um <laughs> all i gotta say is i've i've always won ever since event i saw avengers endgame for the first time i was always hoping that i could go back and relive what it was like to watch that for the first time and that is exactly what i got in this movie yeah. this this movie Literally felt like I was watching in game in theaters again. That is how insane it was. Yeah, but you want to know what No Way Home has on Endgame? What? It is so much tighter. Like, pacing-wise, tonally, it's really great. The themes are so much better, and we're going to talk about all of that stuff. But, of course, first, we got to talk about Tom Holland as Spider-Man. Because I think that this is his best performance yet. He is so good in this movie um especially going into the second act and throughout the third the amount of emotion that he's able to carry just by himself like outside of the rest of the cast because most of the rest of the cast is doing an amazing job too but he's the core of this movie and he's fantastic and i mean we've kind of known that because we had his moment of getting snapped in infinity war and we had him crying over tony in the in endgame but it's different when everything is so much more personal for him in this movie. This is probably the most Spider-Man movie that we've gotten in, in the MCU so far. We have real stakes. We have actual levity. We have Peter getting tossed into a basket and being kicked around a forest. And this is exactly what I wanted with this character. I mean, like, yeah, does it, there, it is hilarious to think that I get excited over seeing a character being treated like actual dirt, but that's what Spider-Man is to me. It's a, a character that gets thrown through the ringer and still comes out of it smiling and hopeful, and that's exactly what this movie did. Yeah, th- this film was to me Spider-Man 2 but even better in uh be, so you described how much emotion that Tom Holland has in this movie right mm-hmm. and it also 
You also talked about how he carries so much emotion, and you even tweeted about it, and you're absolutely right. We see a broken character in this movie. We see a very broken character, and that is not something we've really seen a Spider-Man character have consistently throughout a movie since Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. No. Um, I we, we got a bit of it in The Amazing Spider-Man, but we especially have never really gotten it with MCU Spider-Man. And that was one of my biggest complaints about Far From Home, because I guess anyone doesn't know, because I don't talk about the movie very much. <laughs> Not at all. Um, I have a lot of issues with Far From Home. And I think that in retrospect, if I were to go back and watch the movie now, I would probably like it more knowing what was going to come next. because. In Far From Home, my biggest issue was how lighthearted the film was, despite a lot of the stuff that Peter was forced to deal with. And almost every major emotional moment was either undercut by, like, showing him acting either too much like Tony Stark, which is really weird because Spider-Man should be his own character and you shouldn't be trying to, to mirror those images like that because that creates a message that doesn't really resonate as well as they might think it it would and again he feels too lighthearted the stakes are never really there he doesn't ever feel like spider-man to me in far from home and homecoming it was forgivable because that was the first movie we got with him it's perfectly it's exactly what i expected i expected the more lighthearted character that didn't have a whole lot of gravitas or wasn't as willing to make hard decisions or hard choices that makes sense for that movie but in far from home it was weird for them to keep carrying that weight and that tone. And going into No Way Home, I was worried that that would be the case. And that was kind of the case for the first hour of the movie. And then Peter is forced to come to terms with the decisions he made when, spoiler alert, because we're going to talk about spoilers starting from here on out, when Aunt May died, because he's finally forced to confront his mistakes and grow from them for the first time in the MCU. Yeah, so, yeah, he was broken in, in a large retrospect because, yeah, Aunt May died, and mm-hmm. look, the and MCU be- is... the MCU and it's because of his some, choices, because of his yes. decisions specifically. Yes, and look, it, throughout the MCU, we've had some pretty sad death scenes. Yondu's death in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, mm-hmm. Natasha Romanoff's death in Endgame, uh, Gamora's death in Infinity War. Yeah, but and this, those deaths are always sad because of how they affect the characters around them. Yes, and going off of that, the fact that she died, which kind of shocked me i didn't think they would actually go that far but they Mm -hmm. did and it had a traumatic effect like gwen's death did for andrew garfield in the amazing spider-man 2 like uncle ben's death did for for toby in the first spider-man movie like the death had serious consequences and he grew up and had to mature so quickly because of the traumatic moment, and that gave a level of depth to Tom Holland's character that we have never seen. Yeah, and that depth that you mentioned comes from a few things, and mainly it's the dialogue of that scene, because, and before, we'll talk about the multiverse characters in the moment, but Aunt May is the foremost proponent of Peter doing good in this movie. She's the first one 
the top the tell him that the villains in this film need to be rehabilitated and that he has the responsibility to do that because they're in this universe because of peter so it is his responsibility to help them not just get back to their own universe but to make them better people because as strange says and as they talk about amongst them, themselves but i think it was sandman specifically who i'm actually glad that he's there because he's able to tell ock and uh, Otto octavius and norman osborne that they're going to die because he's seen it because he's lived through that and knowing that all these villains are going to die it makes perfect sense and it's perfectly in line with his character for him to want to help them but it's really aunt may that pushes him to go as far as he does to bring them into his own home to try to re rehabilitate them from there like willingly working with norman to try to make cures for all of them because of all of this pete blames himself for aunt may's death but What's even better is that in Aunt May's final moments, she doesn't understand what's happening to her. She thinks that she's supposed to have been knocked on her ass, and she thinks that she's going to be fine. She thinks that she'll be able to pull through, and so does Peter. Um, so when she's saying all these lines, like that they were doing the right thing, and when she gives the, the with great power comes great responsibility line, she's saying all of this because she believes that they still did the right thing even in her dying moments yes it's a nice mirror to raimi's uh trilogy because in the first spider-man movie with great Parker's great responsibility is one of the very last things uncle yeah. ben said uh to toby and now that's one of the last things she said to tom holland and it's and it's mirrored so well and what i mm -hmm. re what i really loved about it was even though she was gonna die she still acted like there was you know she was gonna be fine going forward she still remained strong to be that strong uh mother figure for peter and i that just shows that she is easily the best aunt may of the three i would disagree with that because and a few things first first off it doesn't technically mirror um, the moment with Uncle Ben in the Raimi trilogy because that is going back to the comics where some more moment happened. Not exact because Ben didn't directly say to Peter that with great power comes great responsibility in the comics, but it's meant to elicit the same emotion because Peter never had an Aunt May figure in his life. And I would agree with you on Marissa Tomei being the best Aunt May if it was not for the fact that she was barely in Far From Home. And this movie had to seriously heavy lift um, the emotion with her character in order for us to care about her death, which it did do, but they had to do a lot of work and a lot of lifting in order for that moment to work. Um, work that Far From Home did none of. So that, that's the only reason why I would still not say that she's the best Aunt May. I would say that the original Spider-Man movies have the best Aunt May because she's consistently characterized it in all three movies it is constantly a heavy part of peter's journey and his decision making and choices which marissa tomei's aunt may is not in the mcu in fact i think this was the first movie where she actually was regardless in the, this movie alone makes her the best because of the impact one of the other ones i understand it had to do heavy lifting but it was so good at it that mm -hmm. i think i think it was still the best it was solid, but it was still hindered by Far From Home doing nothing with her. To be honest, I went into this movie forgetting that that movie even existed. So, yeah, because because the because when I went into this movie, 
I I do I still remember Homecoming very well, but like Far From Home, I just have like no memory of. Yeah. Well, the issue the issue with that is the entirety of the beginning of this movie takes place right after Far From Home. It heavily relies on the events and moments and actions and development from that movie. And because of that, we have the lighthearted version of Peter that we have at the beginning of this. Because again, he didn't develop that much. That's not an issue with No Way Home. That's an issue with Far From Home. And that's why like, I can't look at the characters like this is the best character just because they're good in this. Because, again, they didn't do anything with Aunt May before now. And by proxy, she can't be the best because this was the only movie that she was actually good in and had a large effect on the characters and the plot and the motivations for Peter, which is good. That's great for this movie. But overall, that's why it's not there. I, I'm, I know I'm sounding like a downer. I love this movie, but you... When you're looking at the characters as a whole, you have to acknowledge the fact that certain decisions and certain choices with them were made before this one. Fair enough. But moving right, on to we... the, the, the characters that are just here for this, because we haven't talked about the multiverse stuff. Um, and before this episode, before seeing the movie, I was really worried about how they would handle the multiverse characters, again, with the movie being seemingly being over stuff because you're throwing so many characters from the Raimi films and the web films and you're having Dr. Strange in there too. And you have to balance all these emotional stakes um, on top of pre-existing characters, like getting enough time with MJ and Ned for them to feel compelling. And I think this movie did an excellent job balancing everything out to the point where I not only had a good grasp on where all the characters were in the story and their purpose in this film, but also so that almost every actor had time to shine. And another one of my big worries was that they would compromise the arcs of the characters from their original films by throwing them into this. And one of my favorite choices this movie made was to redeem Alfred Molina's Otto Octavius first. Because it was awesome getting an actual, like seeing Alfred Molina play just a good guy. Just like a nice guy that felt um, terrible for his prior actions and trying to do his best and trying and fully agreeing with what Peter was doing. Yes, he, he was a character who what was, was, a, was a classic Shakespearean tra uh, tragic character. He, he, had, he, had a, he had a good heart, he had good intentions, and he was very close to Peter. Unfortunately, he just had a little bit of an accident, and, well, his arms kind of took over from there. And essentially speaking, he was, he was the best villain in the sense that he had the most morality underneath. That, and, and we actually got to see his face the whole time, so we could see his facial expressions. Exactly. So it makes sense that that morality would would come out more more than the others and i loved seeing doc ock help peter at the end of the movie and i loved and i loved seeing him you know kind of regret what he's done and feel a lot of sadness about it that mm -hmm. just shows how doc ock's not just some brainless uh villain it you know he's he's awesome and alpha marina absolutely killed it in his return as a character yeah 
And I think another thing that I was actually impressed by was how well Alfred Molina fit in with the MCU style of comedy and the beginning, because it's not the same as the Raimi films. I mean, there was like a snarkiness and, and kind of a cheesiness to a lot of the dialogue in the Raimi films. So the co- but the comedy there is very different from the style in the MCU. And what could have came up, come off as um, kind of off-putting or, or not fitting the character still worked in this movie. It was fun seeing um, him react to, to the idea of magic existing or the way that the other characters treat him in this film. I think that all of that worked surprisingly well. There were definitely some moments that, that kind of teetered on being a little more awkward and not exactly working right, like Peter, MJ, and Ned laughing at Otto's name. Um, there's just like a subtle difference between the way that joke is handled and how it's, then the way that um, Jameson talks about it in the original Spider-Man 2. That could have felt just a little too much, you know? But it still worked. And there were only a couple moments in this film where like the, the quippiness of the MCU style of comedy didn't really work for me. And most of it came from Ben the Cumberbatch. It just doesn't work when Doctor Strange does it for whatever reason. Really? I love his dry humor. I think it's great every time he does uh, His it. dry humor can work, but like the when he's quipping, as in like Scooby-Doo, this crap, that doesn't, that line doesn't work. There's a difference between his style of sarcasm that he has with Peter and this jokey quippiness that is more at home with a character like Tony Stark. He starts to lose his own character traits within the quips. I don't know about that. That can still come across as sarcastic. It didn't to me. Okay. It's, it felt more like your traditional Marvel quip that doesn't pertain too much to the character's personality. Again, that's like the only line that exists like that. And again, that's why I say like the beginning of this movie is where a lot of the, the cracks are. And that mainly comes from not knowing where the rest of it's going to go and how it's going to be handled. The rest of the humor in the movie mainly comes from the charisma between actors and between characters. There's not a whole lot of quips, especially in the second and third acts, which is nice. Speaking of the first part of the movie, want to talk about a character that appeared in the first five minutes? Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess we got Matt Murdock as uh, Daredevil Charlie Cox in this movie. It's pretty neat. Um... (laughs) I don't know, like, like the Daredevil stuff is neat. Like, yes, that I gasp in the movie, yeah. But, like, I don't know. Like, it's cool seeing him, but that's not... I didn't really want to talk too much about that because I don't have too much to say other than, like, that's neat, that's cool. I'm curious what they do with him from here on out. I mean, I thought it was pretty cool when he caught the brick without even looking. Yeah, because he's Daredevil, yes. Um. Well... A lot of stuff that I've seen, even from you, is is could we get a Spider-Man Daredevil film? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll talk more about that when we get to how the movie ends, because that that goes into it pretty well. Okay. But yes, I was very happy to see Tom Holland's Peter Parker and Charlie Cox's Matt Murdock on screen together. It's very cool. I hope we get more of it. Um, but keeping on to the the multiverse stuff, because we talked about Alfred Molina. Um. I think one of the big, again, one of the challenges with it was balancing all the characters, which I mentioned earlier. And some of them didn't quite get as much weight as they maybe should have. Um, or they maybe could have because of scheduling issues and all that. Like, it was nice um, getting Thomas Hayden Church, the actor that plays Sandman back, 
it was nice getting the actor for the wizard back but both of those characters sandman was really there to give more weight to um alfred molina and Willem Dafoe's characters as by telling them their deaths and telling them what's going to happen to them in the main universe so they have stakes and reason for acting the way they do in this movie um the wizard feels like he's kind of just there to be a cheesy villain which is fine um but most of the stuff with the wizard in this movie is basically a retread of what we got with the amazing spider-man and i feel like he's really just there to pad out the villains so that we have two villains for Michi. so we have more than one villain from the amazing films yeah and there's nothing wrong with that yeah but i think if you took the wizard out of this movie it would be the same i would agree yeah that's that's the point i'm making he was still good it was still fun but it wasn't necessary other than like having more than one Raimi villain and i or more than one mark webb villain um although seeing all the villains bounce off of each other was fun however i think that jamie fox's electro of the three that have considerably less screen time um was really good actually i was i actually really liked what they did with him here because while it would have been neat to see how they would have handled um taking the version of max that was in the amazing films and implementing him into the mcu i think it was neat that and the way that they still explained the way him being like a different character due being due to the fact that the the energy in this universe is different so his body is reacting to it differently. So he's having like a change in personality and all that. I thought that was really neat. You could tell that Jamie Foxx was having a blast w- with this role. Every single line, you could just tell there was a lot of passion and just fun that he had. And you look, and you just love to see that. And Jamie Foxx probably got a lot of criticism for his role as Electro back in 2014. And you for, just, which was fair at the time. Yes, but you can just tell that he really cared a lot about Electro, and he and he got a second chance, and he had an absolute blast with it. And every time he spoke, I was always – I was either smiling or invested in what he was saying because he was a very entertaining and well-done character. Yeah, it was just – it was fun. It was fun in this movie. Um, but I think that we all know which of the, which of the multiverse villains stole the show here. Because it was such, it, probably the smartest decision this movie made was to take Green Goblin's mask off. Because Willem Dafoe is one of the best actors in Hollywood today. And he gives it his all in this movie. He probably, like in a movie with a bunch of amazing performances, he probably is the best actor here. Yeah, I would agree with that. He, ha- he like J- uh, Jimmy Fox, had an, a blast every second he was on screen. And the fact that he was insistent on him doing his own stunts really shows the dedication he had into this character. Mm-hmm. And it just felt so natural for him. Yeah. And one of the biggest reasons why Green Goblin works so well in this film is up to this point, Peter, the MCU Peter, has ever dealt with a truly evil villain someone that is evil for the sake of being evil that causes pain just to cause pain he's never had a villain like that um vulture and mysterio deep down were both just flawed humans um whose motivations were mainly created by greed or or selfish desire and while that is initially where green goblin comes from 
in the first Spider-Man. The, because of the whole split personality dynamic, he devolves into just being evil to cause pain and suffering. Um, with Norman being the unwitting harbinger of that suffering, the one that is carried along on the journey that just wants to be human again, that still wants to help people, wants to be separated from the goblin. And I love the fact that they kept the dynamic between Norman and the Goblin for this film, that we still had that split personality, and the fact that even without the mask, you never could really tell who was in control. And the moment when Peter Spider-Sense activates in the apartment, and Alfred Molina's auto immediately notices that something is wrong, because he knows what Peter's like when the Spider-Sense is, is acting up. And Peter looks around the room to try to figure out which one of them is causing it. And immediately, how fast he reacts to Norman, to Green Goblin, finally revealing himself is fantastic. Yet he still wasn't fast enough to be able to stop him. And that seems to be a common case when fighting the Green Goblin in these movies. Yes, Green Goblin is very powerful in so many different ways. Like physically, yeah, he is strong, but it, it's it's the mental games and it's the pure decisiveness and the pure evil uh, within that personality mm-hmm. that is extremely difficult to match up against and to defeat because it's so it's so conniving. It's it's the epitome of evil in the Spider-Man universe, and that's the scariest thing there is. Yeah. Of all of the villains, he's the one that is the most monstrous, the most hateful, the most villainous, the most evil. And that's why when he's the one that caused, when he kills Aunt May, why Peter wants nothing but to wipe him off the face of the earth. Because unlike the other villains, Peter doesn't see any humanity still there within the Goblin. He only sees the hate because that's all that he's been to him. Yes, and it's it, it's not for us as understandable. Obviously, killing's not the answer, but it's understandable. I also just have to quickly point out how they did the meme. They did the meme where Norman said in his cell, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Yes. I did love that. I did have to quickly point that out. But... And and his feelings about what how the goblin killed Aunt May and wanting revenge for that is why I think that they brought in Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire at the exact perfect moment. Because up to that point, we had had time with Tom Holland's Spider-Man. We saw him make his own choices, his own decisions, cause pain and suffering along the way. And now he's blaming himself for his own actions that led to Aunt May's death. He feels terrible and wants nothing more than to kill the Goblin, a feeling that Andrew Garfield and Tommy McGuire Spider-Man, Spider-Men, know all too well. Yes, and I gotta say, when we see both of them walk through uh, uh, Ned's portals, that is definitely a top... Uh, theater moment for me i the audience that i saw with completely cheered when that happened 
And the only other three moments for me that mirror this, because I have a clear, like after this, I have a clear Mount Rushmore uh, theater moments. It is number one will always be the opening crawl of The Force Awakens because it was the first Star Wars movie we saw in theaters and nothing will ever top that moment of seeing the title crawl in there for the first time. Um, Cap catching Mjolnir and your reaction was a part of that. Yeah, the two Spider-Man walking through the portals. When I tell you that I, my my soul almost left my body when that happened. It it, it did. It my my soul almost left my body because me and a few friends uh, watched the Raimi trilogy before this, and I love Andrew Garfield as an actor, especially after watching The Social Network. But he got the absolute worst writing imaginable. Yes. Yes, it's he did. It's such a shame. Because I think, and this movie makes this especially clear. Andrew, I think, gets the character more than any of the other actors playing Spider-Man. He understands what Spider-Man means, and he puts so much effort and work in every single scene he has in this movie. It's almost to the point where he outshines Tom Holland's own performance. And he's only on screen for like half an hour. Yes, and one of the reasons why, like, that, them appearing in the portal is, like, top four along with, and the fourth one would be the Darth Vader hallway scene, is because when I saw Andrew Garfield, a part of me immediately thought, oh, my God, they're, they're about to do him better than the, his two movies ever did. Like, I just knew that no matter what was ahead with Andrew Garfield, it was going to be better than his two movies, because obviously those two movies were very rough to be kind. Right. Yeah, and I love the way that they fill in the gaps of the events that happened after Mrs. Spider-Man 2. The one, the line he has, the way that he says, talks about Gwen's death and the effect it had on him, like the, like him no longer pulling his punches, that he became more brutal, that he became darker in the shell of who he was and that he no longer was the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man because of that was excellent. And I love the look in Andrew's eyes when he tells Tom's Peter that he doesn't want him to end up like he is now. He doesn't want Aunt May's death to affect him the way that Gwen's did for him. Yes, and I will say Andrew Garfield gave the best moment in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, not, when, I'll, I'll tell but, you. When, sh- st- I'm going to stop you there because I, I still want to talk about the scene with them talking to Tom Holland's Peter first before we get into that amazing moment. Okay. Because we have a lot more to say about this first. I don't want the discussion to get too rat-tailed. <laughs> because the, the reason why that moment with Andrew works so well um, when he's talking with Tom Holland's Peter is that in the present, like, Andrew is experiencing the ramifications of what Tom Holland has just gone through, of what his Peter has just gone through. And comparatively, because, yeah, Toby's Peter is also there, and he's great. Um, comparatively, Toby talks about when Ben died, when Ben died in his arms, this is very similar to how Aunt May did, and he went after his, the killer and sought out vengeance, and eventual, And while he wasn't directly the one that killed the man that killed Uncle Ben, he's, he still inevitably caused it, and it gave him no relief. It's interesting seeing a version of Peter that's stuck, that is currently experiencing that vengeful spirit and desire and then another peter that has experienced it knows what it does to him and knows that it's not worth it and doesn't give you any satisfaction is excellent it is it 
it shows that, like, yeah, Spider-Man gets beat up a lot. He goes through a lot, but at the end of the day, he ultimately triumphs. But it's very hard, and sometimes you don't fully triumph from that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the big thing that it stresses is it's, it's the effect of turning away from that good, from what Aunt May told him to do, that with great power comes great responsibility. And I love when Peter says that, and Toby finishes the line, and he says, why do you know that? And it's Andrews, Peter, that, that, that nods when Toby says that Uncle Ben said it, as if all three of them have the shared connection. That all three of them in that moment immediately understand exactly what that moment meant and exactly how it felt. And while Tom doesn't want them to say that they know what, exactly what he's going through, they do. And that's exactly what he needed in that moment. MJ and Ned can, can give him as much comfort as they can as his friend, as his girlfriend. They know somewhat about how he's feeling and they know that he needs them there. But the other Peters are the ones that know how he feels in the moment because they've been there. Yes. And at, at the beginning of this discussion, I compared this to Endgame. And this feels like a culmination of every single live-action Spider-Man movie, just like Endgame was a culmination of all the MCU live-action films before it. And yeah. it, it, it does it so well because there's all these shared experiences that feels natural. It just feels like three people like uh, meeting each other and telling each other stories and, yeah. and building and each other up. And it's more than just that. Because each of the, their experiences that they're sharing has meaning overall. Because everything that Andrew and Toby's Peters are saying to Tom are showing him that he's not alone. It's not just empty fan service, like them talking about the events from their movies. Like they're reading out their biography as if like these are all the things that happened to them in order to remind fans of what they experienced. It's not that. Because it has meaning, because it has purpose within the story, because it's meant to bring Tom Holland back from the brink and to make his Peter feel like he needs to be Spider-Man. And Aunt May's death wasn't in vain and that he's still, and the light that they were searching for is still there. They, it could have easily been empty. They could have easily just been visual callbacks to moments in previous movies with these characters, talking about the events and them having no effect or weight within the story. I could not be more grateful that No Way Home not only didn't do that, but ended its story being hopeful. We see Peter get down and dark and dirty. We see him in the final battle try to kill Green Goblin for that exact same reason, because he still feels all that hate within himself. But there's still that hope at the end of the tunnel, and we see that in, every, in almost every scene that these three share. And it's fun seeing them talk about the difference in their webbing, like seeing both Andrew and Tom's Peters be completely weirded out by Toby having organic webbing is hilarious and very fan servicey, but it also services their characters because we see their personalities through the ways that they react to it. And, and that's, also, that's also a wink to the fans because the fans are always wondering, Wait, how how does uh, Toby have uh, organic while the other two have web shooters? And th- th- that's something that ever since I was a kid, that was oh, uh, since the first Amazing Spider-Man came out, everyone was always told like, wait, Andrew has them, but Toby doesn't. What's up with that? 
Well, I mean, the, the easy answer to that is Sam Raimi thought it would be more gross and weird for him to have organic webbing. <laughs> and Andrews and Tom's have the web shooters because it shows their intelligence. That's the, that's the easy answer. Well, yeah, <laughs> but there obviously... really isn't Because there, there really isn't another answer by that. The, like, the, the answer the movie gives is they're just different. They're from other universes. There is no yeah. greater explanation because there doesn't need to be because if there was, that'd be super fan servicey. And again, all the fan service in this movie, at least for the most part, has meaning for the story. Whenever they talk about their shared experiences, it affects them as characters or we see the way that they would react because of it. Getting an explanation of in the multiverse of why Toby has organic web shooters would be stupid because it would be empty fan service. That's fair. Which is why we don't get it. Because the writers knew exactly how to handle these characters. And the right amount and the right type of fan service to give. I mean, it's the same reason why I like the fan service in The Last Jedi more than any other Star Wars movie. Because it's still the only Star Wars thing in current canon that has the fan service actually have meaning. It does do fan service really well, I will agree. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing that No Way Home really gets because the moments between them we when we get like the moment when ned asks toby like what happened if he had a best friend what happened to him it serves as a funny moment because we see um both toby's feelings and acknowledgement of what happened to harry in spider-man 3 and that those feelings are still affecting him while also getting a funny moment with ned so we get that moment servicing a dual purpose we see the effect that traumatic events have on Toby and how similar he is to Tom Hall and Spider-Man in that regard, while also getting a funny moment with Ned. And almost every fan service thing in this film has that dual purpose. It's not there just to make our, our give us the tingles and make us fuzzy inside. Yes, it, it, it does pack a lot of emotion more than just, oh yeah, there's this thing. No, wait, this thing actually feels organically tied together, which is how it's supposed to work. Absolutely, and that's not to say that there aren't still Easter eggs in this movie, because again, like, there's things like Matt Murdock showing up at the beginning, and moments like when they're trying to close the multiverse destruction that's breaking out at near the end of this film, and you see Scorpion and the silhouette of what appears to be Kingpin, and you see the silhouette of the Rhino, and so many other common Spider-Man characters. There's people that have said that they've been able to see Craven the Hunter in there, too. So there are like there are still like fan service Easter egg things, but they're not in your face. Almost all the fan service that is in your face is fan service that has meaning for the characters as well as us the audience, and not just us. And that's why it works so well. Absolutely. And I've seen complaints about um, things like it, it's weird for all the villains in this movie to not have a direct connection to Tom Holland's Peter but the, and that they maybe should have thrown Vulture and Mysterio in but as I mentioned earlier unlike those two almost every single villain in, in this movie in fact, I think all of the villains in this movie are monsters that need fixing they either need long term therapy or they need a cure or a quick fix that will save them from their worst tendencies. For Ock, that's getting his nitpitter chip fixed. For Norman, that's getting the serum removed from his system. 
for Electro it's, and Sandman, it's getting rid of their power. Yeah, I don't get the complaint about that. I, I thought it worked really well, and I really enjoyed the fact that these villains had a problem instead of just defeating them actually trying to help them i really enjoyed that that was that was the goal and that was the right thing to do even though yeah it's healing the mistakes of the past because i've seen people point out on on twitter that outside of this movie and and homecoming and the first amazing spider-man there has been at least one villain death per movie of course assuming that mysterio is still alive because he very well could be for the most part the spider-man's especially toby's really has a problem with his villains dying in every movie. I mean, they might get heroic, redemptive deaths. I mean, in the case of, of Alfred Molina's Doc Ock, but they still die. And I see this movie as also healing the mistakes of the past. I mean, yeah, you have the obvious thing of like making Andrew's Gar- Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man likable or giving Jamie Foxx a second attempt at Electro. But it's, it's more than that. It's like healing the mistakes that Toby and Andrew Spider-Man had in their respective films the mistakes that they made in their journey and i think that that's really clever and there's been a lot of movies um recently that have been kind of tackling the fixing the mistakes of the past like healing the bridge that was broken and i think that this movie handles that theme really well yeah it was really exemplified when when uh, tom was talking about oh they they died fighting spider-man and he wanted to be better because he is spider-man he wants to be the best version of himself that he can be and that involves making the hard choices and again this whole situation was caused by him wanting to help his friends by breaking the multiverse this this whole situation was caused by his own mistakes so it makes sense that he would have to lose something at the end and peter's decision to erase himself from everyone's collective conscience is huge. And that's a decision that we, that winds up with what we see with Spider-Man going before. Again, like, and I think that, and before we get into that, actually, we should probably talk more about the reasons why Toby and Andrew Spider-Man work so well in this movie. And that's because they feel like their own characters. I mean, they have purpose within Tom's story, but they aren't just cameos. They have actual characters. And we get major emotional moments with them. We have um, Toby reconnecting with um, Doc Ock and see, and them asking how they've been and, and Alfred Molina's Doc Ock being so happy over how old Peter was able to get and how, how good he looks for his age. We get moments like that with him caring about how well Peter was taking care of himself and, and Pete being happy to see a version of Doc Ock that isn't affected by his arms. But... As you mentioned, probably the best moment between them in this movie was Andrew Garfield's um, Spider-Man catching MJ. And that could have still been an easy fan service moment of kind of rectifying what was done in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 with the, the death of Gwen very obviously haunting Andrew Spider-Man, but with all the buildup with the way that he talks about Gwen's death before that moment, as well as his reaction after catching her with him breaking down emotionally because he was able to save the girl because he was able to do what he couldn't do before is excellent it is the it is the best one in the film because you saw like when you when you look at first of all andrew garfield like you say willem dafoe was the best actor in this movie andrew garfield's a very close second a very close second 
and you see the the pain, but also the relief on his face. Like there's so many emotions on his face all at the same time after he caught her because he, you know, he was able to kind of forgive himself in a way and and and, and kind of move forward, not move on, but move forward with what happened with Gwen and the fact and. I, I was sobbing like I, I legitimately was sobbing because I'm like damn this guy has been through so much and the fact that he was able to do that like shows that he didn't deserve what happened to Gwen and I I love the fact that he was able to kind of find some just uh justice for himself and it shows how great Andrew Garfield is as the character which is why I would love to see a movie with him where the writing is actually really good. Yeah. Please. Yeah. I've seen a lot of people hoping that Andrew's Spider-Man will be the Spider-Man for the Venom verse of movies. And I'd be perfectly okay with that. I mean, as long as we get, as, I mean, Andrew Garfield and anything is fine. It, like, like if you haven't seen the social network, watch it. Cause he is legendary in that movie. Yeah. And I recently covered his performance in tick, tick boom on the site. As well, and it's, I mean, like his performance in Social Network is amazing, but I think his performance in Tick, Tick, Boom is his career best. I highly recommend watching that movie if you have the time. It's on Netflix right now. It's fantastic. Probably check it out at some point. But yes, that that moment was so great. And also seeing Toby uh, connect with Flint Marco, even for a brief moment, was great because it continued the arc of how Toby forgave him for, for killing his uncle. Yeah. There, there is a lot of really good stuff between them. Although I think that Toby's best moment for me in this film, or at least the best moment that he got, was first off, the fight between Tom Holland and, and Green Goblin, the final fight on the Captain America shield that the Cetra Liberty had to fell off was amazing. We got to see just how forceful the punches were. And while some of the framing could have been better, and some of the, the visual direction spectacle for the third act could have been better, I think that the gravitas of the moment and the acting between Tom and Willem Dafoe was amazing. But probably the shining moment in that is when Tom goes to kill Norman with his own glider, very similar to what happened in the first Spider-Man. Not exact, because this time Tom is willfully, like purposefully killing him, while in that movie, um, Toby Spider-Man inadvertently um, caused Norman's death. But here, I love Toby Spider-Man catching the glider because he knows in that moment exactly what Tom is feeling, what Tom um, Spider-Man is feeling, because he's been there, because he, he had wanted to kill Norman the same way at the end of the first Spider-Man, and his decision-making and his reactions led to Norman's death in that movie. So it's poetic that Toby be the one to spare Norman's life here. Did you think Toby was going to die when Norman stabbed him? I mean, there was like a moment where I like briefly gasped, like, oh, no, they're going to get, they're going to kill him. But like, it makes, it makes, when, when I thought about it more, especially after he was okay, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because he's, he's had much worse in his own movies than that moment. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he took a pumpkin bomb to the face in the first Spider-Man. He was going to be fine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But but no, and I love the relief on, Willem Dafoe, on Norman's face when he realizes the goblin is gone. That was an excellent moment. It was so well acted. Yes, it was. You can, you can, you can feel how, how happy he is while also feeling how, how 
the weight of the actions that the goblin has on him because he now has to deal with the fact that he caused so much pain just within the last day while despite how much Tom was trying to help him. Yeah, another example of how great Willem Dafoe is and again, uh, emotional emotional beats of the film done really well. And I know probably the one thing that we really haven't talked too much about is is MJ and Ned's purpose in this film. And I uh, mainly is the fact that some, there's just so much going on in this movie. But I think that MJ and Peter's relationship has done really well here. One of the biggest weaknesses that Far From Home had was the way it dealt with interpersonal relationships, especially compared to the homecoming. Um, Ned especially felt like he took a backseat to be more comedic relief in Far From Home than anything else, um, where in no way Homie has a much bigger role. And MJ and Peter's relationship, while maybe not established the best in Far From Home, is their chemistry and their relationship is excellent in this movie. And I especially love the small moments of, like, Andrew's Peter looking at the way MJ and, and Tom's Peter were, were dealing with and the, the way that he reacts to seeing a version of himself happy in a relationship. And on top of that, and that scene mainly works because of the chemistry that Tom and Zendaya have together on screen. I mean, it helps that they're dating off screen. Yeah, that is true. But here's what I'll say, and I'll, and I'll be blunt about this. one of my biggest points in the movie. The thing about uh, MJ and Far From Home is that she didn't really – that, that her and Tom Holland's relationship didn't feel organic to me. No, it felt kind of forced. I, I agree with that. Yes. So in this film, sim, s- simply put, they actually feel like a real relationship. And what I can say from personal experience is that the, the thing the, – there are things about – like relationships that are universally true. There's not many, but there are a couple. And unlike Far From Home, No Way Home actually had this, you know, w- with the one that's like, hey, like, you know, maybe you should you should have told me or or the fact that you actually care about whether or not the other person is okay mm-hmm. in, instead of just having a snarky comment. Like, that, that that's real and genuine, okay? Like, from personal experience, the concern if someone if someone else okay in a relationship is is paramount. Okay, it, yeah. it simply is, and the fact that she constantly was being emotionally sympathetic was so great to watch because it actually felt like I was watching a real relationship, which which for me is important to see because I don't want to see forced because I can tell when a relationship on screen is forced or not. Okay, because it do, it just falls flat, it mm-hmm. falls flat. But this did not. It hit. It hit the perfectly organic emotions, and I loved that. Yeah, and the other, and one of the biggest reasons why their relationship in Far From Home didn't really work all that well was because MJ didn't feel like a, a too much of a three dimensional character there. She felt more like a snark, like sarcasm machine, rather than like an actual character. And this movie immediately sets out to change that by establishing her working relationship who she is outside of her relationship with Tom, um, her own pursuits and goals, as well as making her an equal part in the relationship. And, and again, as you mentioned, actually worried about the other person's well-being and wishing that Tom Peter had actually consulted her on the decision to try to brainwash everyone on the planet. Yes, exactly. 
Yeah, and I really appreciate that. I was especially impressed with how good the acting was in their final scene with Peter in this movie, too. Yeah, so... Yeah, the, the, that whole scene was great, but the biggest thing I, I would like you to go into is you had, you've said on Twitter, you also said to me personally uh, before we recorded that the last five minutes was uh, completely sent you or wh- whatever, yes. that, whatever that means. Explain so, why. The do that, we have to get the build up for the closing of the multiverse and Peter erasing everyone for- racing him his the memory of him from everyone on the planet because that's a deeply spider-man thing the whole thing with peter is that he's supposed to be the everyman that we're all supposed to relate to and the feeling of of try, wanting to be selfless of of and that that feeling of being truly alone in order to help the people that you love and care about is taken to an extreme degree with Spider-Man and everything. And here, that case is him erasing himself from everyone's memory. People will still remember Spider-Man, but all memory of Peter Parker is completely gone. And that choice works because of the seeds that have been planted before in the movie. Um, with Aunt May gone, Peter no longer has any re- any physical, any like genetic genetic relatives in his life that he cares for and that care for him that it would cause him pain to be without. And all of his all the people around him are being negatively affected by his actions and by their relationship with him. So the him in that moment. It's not an easy decision, but it's the decision that he knows he must make. And, and that moment is excellent. Mainly because we also see how much Doctor Strange cares for him in that moment. Like that he switches from saying that the people that care about you will miss you to saying that I won't remember you. That I care about you and that I will miss you. And I think that's excellent and i especially love the final moment between mj and ned where he tells them that they're not going to remember him and him and mj seemingly forcing him the promise that they'll see each other and that he'll reconnect with her but the reason i love those last few minutes is when he goes to the bakery to try to reconnect with mj and ned you see him try to go through the motions, reading off of the, this piece of paper that he's written to try to convince MJ that, of their relationship and, the, and to try to make things work again. But it's when he hears them talking about getting into MIT and how happy they are, um, it's that moment of thinking, maybe, maybe they're better off without me. Maybe... Without me in their lives, they'll be happier. And that is the most Spider-Man moment. That is the most Peter Parker moment we've had in any of these movies. Is him sacrificing his own well wishes for the well-being of those he cares most about. Um, 
it is an excellent scene and it legit brought tears to my eyes when he walked out of the bakery because I could not for the life of me believe that Marvel and Sony actually had to make that decision because that makes it so that there will actually be like not stakes but like lasting consequences of his actions that he may actually lose these friendships and relationships that he's had for all three of these movies over the mistakes and decisions that he's made it's more than just aunt may's death that could have been good enough on its own but i'm glad that it's more than that and it's exciting to see peter move into that lone apartment in New York to have to sell the Stark technology in order to make a living on his own, to have to make his own suit from scratch, to be listening to New York police scanners in order to know where the crimes are, to, and, and the final swing, the final uh, swing in this movie is probably, well, again, it could have, visually been better because it was really hard to tell what was happening sometimes <laughs> and we never really got a good look at his new suit which is a shame but i am excited to see i could not be more excited to see what they do with spider-man next because they're basically starting from scratch and i've talked about it before i mean like yeah the fan service thing would i would love to see him team up with Daredevil because Daredevil is far removed from the Avengers and their street level heroes. And he has a very similar morality to him. But the thing that I think I want most going into the next movie is again, when he leaves MJ and Ned, he's thinking that they're better off without him, that their lives will improve without him there, without their friendship and their relationship and his relationship with, to them. What I want for the next movie is it, to be about him getting proved wrong. That they aren't better, that their lives will not be better without him there. To, to be able to see your best friend and your girlfriend in one place, and then having the selflessness to hold yourself back and say they're better without me. If that isn't selfless love, I don't know what is. That is... That is selflessness of biblical proportions right there. Like that, I can't imagine doing that. I would fail. I mean, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person necessarily, but I don't think I would have the strength to do that. Mm-hmm. That is that is one of, if not the hardest things imaginable. To see possibly the two people you care the most about and make a conscious decision to walk away from their lives thinking you're better without them, that, that's tough. And sometimes you do need that reassurance. That's why words of affirmation is a love language, because sometimes we need that affirmation because we think we're not good enough for them. We think some people think, oh, they're better off without me. Well, obviously, every case is different, but there are a lot of times where that isn't necessarily true. And I and I think you're absolutely right. I would love for him to be proven wrong. That would be the most wholesome thing imaginable. So I agree. And again, I think I said this earlier, but it, this that final scene, those final five minutes, fix every issue I have with Far From Home. There's lasting stakes. Um, things, what, uh, events in this movie that will have lasting consequences and will affect him continuously in the future. 
there's not a single character that knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. That breaks his connection to any member of the Avengers because now they're going... Because, because think about it. Spider-Man is now the only hero in the MCU that didn't attend Tony Stark's funeral. Think how weird that must be for every, char- for every member of the Avengers now. He, he has lost his connection to, to Stark Enterprises, so he no longer has any of that financial backing. He doesn't have any of those hero connections that he might have had before. He's completely on his own, not just like he, not him having no longer having any close relationships, but no relationships at all. There's not a single person that remembers him on the, on the face of the earth. I didn't think about the funeral part. That's brutal. Mm-hmm. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. He, like, he's going to be confined to a neighborhood now. Yeah, and again, like another thing, I love the moment between him and Happy when he visits um, Aunt May's grave because again, that that shows how far-reaching this is. That Happy can't even. It must be weird to Happy that he doesn't fully understand why he had this connection with May. Because that that relationship only happened because of Peter, but he doesn't remember Peter at all. He only remembers Spider-Man, and he knows that he had this connection to Aunt May because of Spider-Man, but he doesn't, he probably doesn't know why that relationship happened anymore. Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. This is why I I think that they're going to know this. I think the characters that had deep connections to Peter are going to know this, this emptiness that's there. Again, like I'm going to pull from something else for this. And, and near Replicant, Spoiler alert for people that haven't played Near Replicant because I'm going to spoil the hell out of the final ending. The final ending of Near Replicant, in, in the second to last ending of Near Replicant, um, you're given the choice to either save your best friend from death um, by erasing yourself from existence or killing her. And if you erase your save files, the final ending is you playing as the person you saved with them trying to bring you back from non-existence because they feel a void within their memories, within their heart. As if there's something there, as if there, there was someone there that meant a lot to them that they no longer know. And I want that to be the plot of the next Spider-Man movie. I think that would be excellent if they were to do that. Yeah, this movie's brutal. <laughs> but it's that brutalness that makes it the first time that I've felt that Tom Holland Spider-Man actually was Spider-Man. And 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 we and we got the word. We got the word in the last five minutes too. Rent. We got the word. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the true MC the true arch nemesis of Spider-Man is Rent. The, that made me and that was another fan service moment done well. I mean, yeah. I mean the whole thing with him like getting into like the creaky apartment and then flinging himself out the window is a very like trademark Spider-Man thing. I mean, even like outside of the movies, that's the opening scene of Spider-Man PS4. Yes, it is. So it's just like it's like quintessential Spider-Man for him to like be listening to the police radio and jumping out of his window in his spider in his newly made Spider-Man costume to go stop the bad guys. That is the most Spider-Man thing ever. And yes, go and yes. If you haven't played the Spider-Man PS4 game, go play it. It's great. You sure? That's like the best Spider-Man 
story outside the comics ever. Yes, I would it is. I would argue that it is better than every Spider-Man movie, except oh, it maybe is. Spider-Verse. One maybe one hundred percent. But Miles it's Rouse, definitely better than every live action one. Not even a question. Yes, uh, Miles Morales is good, and I can't wait for the next game when both Peter and Miles team up in the next Spider-Man game, which I might have to get a PS4 by the time that PS5 by the time that comes out because that's that could that might be one of the most hyped games ever for me. But but yes, to conclude, I like this movie a lot. It definitely like a lot of people have been saying. I mean, if you've listened to High Toss video, I feel similarly, but I love this movie a lot more. The highs and emotional highs and where the movie went, um, basically cured any of the the problems I have with maybe some of the pacing and some of the, the writing characterizations in the beginning. My real my only real complaint with this movie on its own is that this is John Watts' third movie. And I, he still hasn't really grown that much of a, as, like, a filmmaker. He's, there's a couple moments that really stick out, like the Spider-Sense moments or the one long take um, at the beginning of the film when Peter's identity is broadcasted to the public and we get him swinging through New York with MJ and in, in his own apartment and we see the camera rotating around. And that's, that's neat. But when it comes to the big climatic moments, like the, the fights in the third act, or the Spider-Man swinging together, or even the final swing at the end of the movie, he doesn't really know how to handle this grandiose iconography very well. He doesn't know how to make those moments shine visually, not just in their writing or in their metatextual meaning. And that's the only reason why I don't fully love this movie, because I think he still has a lot to go, because it's, it's wild to me that um, a Spider-Man movie in 2021 doesn't look as good as a Spider-Man movie in 2002. That's a statement. It's Sam Raimi has way more style than John Watts ever ever has shown in any of his movies. Yes, and I and I cannot wait for when Sam Raimi Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness comes out. That is visuals are not going to be a problem in that movie, just to say the least. Yeah, just from the trailer alone, it's already color graded better than most things in the MCU. Like the actual colors stick out, and the blacks are actually dark. Yeah, it's not like this weird gray color palette because I've seen um, stills from the trailer compared to stills from infinity war and yeah it's like night and day just from like a visual standpoint and just like in between like just in in the camera focusing on the act on ben the cumberbatch's face it just looks better it's not even like it's not even like purposeful like chromatic framing it's like the small just in between frame looks better than than um an in between from infinity war that's wild and it's just goes to show how much better of a filmmaker he is. Yes. Easily my most anticipated movie for 2022. Yeah. Here's hoping that that remains the case when the film actually releases. A- agreed, <laughs> agreed. End up gearing it out. And because Marvel has definitely had an issue with the past of letting the filmmakers own um, style shine through their movies. I mean, as good, as much as you love Thor Ragnarok, Sean, Ty- it's Taika's weakest movie. Because visually, like even his style was getting drowned out by the typical Marvel flair compared to his work in Jojo Rabbit. Okay. That's all I'm going to say to that. Okay. Because I could argue for 30 minutes why that's horribly wrong. 
but I'm completely right. So you'd be wrong. <laughs> okay. Next topic. The other major Marvel thing that we got this week was the first the Hawkeye finale. And then, yeah, we, I know that we talked about Daredevil, but it, everybody knows that I love Daredevil so much. So you can imagine my excitement when uh, Wilson Fisk's, when, when Vincent D'Onofrio, Wilson Fisk's Vincent D'Onofrio, when Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk appeared at the end of episode five of Hawkeye, while I think the reveal could have been done better, I was very excited because I haven't seen this character in three years. And to not only get him so much in the finale, but have him talk the same and also physically appear more complicated. Because they did they like the Lord of the Rings style framing to make him look larger than life in scenes. And they actually had him have super strength and more durability like he does in the comics. Like he felt superhuman, which is something that he never really had in Daredevil. But that's a deeply complicated thing. And it's a characterization that fits the more silly aspects of Hawkeye perfectly. Yeah, the dude just took just took an arrow straight to the straight to the chest and he just ripped it out and just kept going like nothing happened. Oh yeah. Like what the heck? <laughs> yeah. And since Sean has never gotten past the first episode of Daredevil, he unfortunately has this is his first time experiencing Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin. Yes. Okay, to be fair, like I tried watching Daredevil four years ago. So, maybe back when I, his taste in television was terrible, I hadn't even seen Avatar: The Last Airbender at that point yet. Um, so I will actually agree with that. But <laughs> what was I gonna say? But yeah, seeing Vincent D'Onofrio's uh, Kingpin was excellent. He he had this presence on screen that just felt like you need to see what happens every moment. He was. He was terrifying. You you felt like he was just perfect for the role, and and what's funny is that um, I'm trying to remember the exact show, but he was in a cop show. Like Vincent D'Onofrio was in a cop show. I think it was uh, Law and Order Criminal Intent. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Law and Order Criminal Intent. And my mom watched it a lot. So seeing Vincent D'Onofrio, well, much different obviously than the lead detective in that show, was awesome. He's a great actor. And he just had this incredible charisma that you can buy him as this character, and I'm and I loved every second of him in the finale. He was easily the best part. He was the second best part, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, but and I think that the way that Kingpin was used in this episode was excellent because one of the recurring themes, especially in this episode, is the idea of vengeance of taking what had what wrong had been done unto you and laying it back onto others and the conditioning to be turned into a weapon to cause pain. And that is something that Echo struggles with. And that's why I think that um, almost all of her scenes were really well done and had a lot of emotion behind them in this episode is because of the reveal in the previous one that Quint was paid by king was informed by kingpin that her father was there that night and that he was to be there to take them out um and that's a theme that spreads to haley and to haley steinfeld's kate bishop as well and quint barden but especially um yoena 
because Yoina is blind oh, okay. and wants someone to place blame on for her sister's death. And she wants Quint to be the person that she can just stick all of her ter- all of her hurt feelings on and take them out on him and think that if she kills him, then all of that pain will be gone and all of that grief will go away. But unfortunately for her, Quint is a good person. Yes, he is. He's a very good person. And that whole confrontation between them was perfection. And in my opinion, this could be a hot take. I don't care. Roast me all you want. But their interaction was the best scene uh, in any of the live action MCU TV shows this year. That's a hot take that I very much disagree with. But The reason for this, I will defend my take. Is first of all, it made it made Black Widow better. Second of all, I mean, yeah, it, I guess I kind of did that. Also, it made Natasha's death in in Endgame even more emotional than it already was. Three, the fact that that Clint was able to kind of save himself with the secret whistle is probably Clint's best character moment we have ever seen from him in the MCU. Because because it shows his humanity. It shows how deeply he was connected with Natasha. It shows his morality. It told us everything we need to know about him in one moment. And fourth of all, in the capper, um, Yelena basically in tears uh, because of things Clint said and then reached her hand out to, to lift him back up. Uh, just showed how much humanity Yelena has, even though... So yeah, when you combine all four of those aspects, it, it, is, it is the best MCU live-action moment. I, I'm not counting What If, because th- that was a whole nother uh, just crazy moments, but with all those emotions, with all those payoffs, with all the development, just in that one scene alone, I, I was transcended because of how good that was. And that made that made this whole show near perfect for me. Not perfect, close to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I really liked almost all the character moments in this episode. I really liked what was done. I really loved again all of the chemistry between Yelena and Kate in this episode. I think that Florence Pugh and Haley Steinfeld have a fantastic chemistry. It's so much fun seeing them on screen again in this episode. But it's really, the last couple episodes have really sold me on Quentin and Kate's dynamic together. They're so, their partnership is so good. You really see how much the two of them have affected each other throughout this whole show with Quint. Now wanting to actually fall under more of his heroics, to actually try to be the hero and role model that Kate sees him as. Um, while Kate has matured a lot and is able to handle a lot more on her own because of Quint's effect on her. Yes, their dynamic is great. And one moment I loved was when was when Clint said, you're my partner. I'm not leaving you until, until this is dealt with. And considering how he kept trying to push her away constantly, that was such a satisfying moment. And her reaction was great and it was genuine and i loved how natural him saying that was 
Absolutely. Um, and again, I think one of the reasons why this is probably my second favorite show in that we've gotten from Disney Plus so far after Loki is that all the emotional moments really hit. They're able to keep the story concise, so there's no story threads left tangling or that don't feel that or don't end in a satisfying way. Everything feels like it hits its climax and concludes in a way that feels meaningful for both the characters and the story at large. And that is something that most of the other Disney Plus shows don't handle very well, especially WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier. Can we talk about Jack the Swordsman for a second, please? Yeah, um, I'm so glad Jack was just a red herring because he was so much fun throughout this whole season. He was. Now that I look back, like, yeah, he was also, like, we all were suspicious of him. Obviously, Kate was this whole time and never really liked him. But him just fighting with the sword and having so much fun while defending Kate was... I was just smiling the whole time. And it, he's just a good guy. Like, he's he's over the top. He's romantic, but he's fun. And he, he's a good guy. He, he, he's a good guy. And I, 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 I love seeing him fight with the sword. I love how... Uh, back in episode three or four, when Kate and Jack were fencing, and she got special because he uh, he parried her her uh, swing, and you think, oh, that's a red flag. It it then turns around and actually works really uh, was actually used to their advantage. I thought it was excellent writing. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's always fun seeing the way that they use trick arrows in this episode as well. Because again, like another thing that's really nice about Hawkeye, and something I was initially worried about with episode one, because how shaky all the action was. The action starting in like, I think episode three onward has been consistently fantastic. You get like that, the, the, the kind of pseudo fight between Kate and Yelena, and Yelena where it's very queer, the, the setting for the action and, and, all the camera movement is really pulled back so we can see all of the framing and all of the direction and all the choreography. And I love how easy it is to follow the action in these episodes. Whenever they're actually in open space or whenever the lighting is actually like good and is shining on all the characters and we can actually see what's happening, it's fantastic. It legit, and I'm pretty sure this is the case, that I think episode one and episodes three and six were directed by completely different people. Really? It feels like it. Yeah. They were done really well. I mean, the, the first the first ep- the first episode was a little shaky. I still thought it was it was good, but like all, the the action, especially in episodes four and six, were spectacular. Um yeah, it, yeah the, both episodes one and six were directed by Rice Thomas. It almost feels like, it, it feels like he had a, like a euphoric, uh, like better understanding of how to direct action from what Bert and Birdie did in episodes three, four, and five. Agreed. Yeah, the, the proven is definitely significant. Um, also, what did you think of... Uh, of the reveal of well we kind of revealed at the end of episode five but like but like eleanor's character in general the fact that you know she was associated with kingpin to pay off her husband's debts and you know it it makes sense it makes a lot of sense to do that because she again she had a lot of suspicious lines even before that things like 
again, we talked about them when we covered episode four, but her offhand remark to the Quint about trying to get him off of the case and wanting him to not be taking part in it, which I'm willing to bet that the hiring of Joanna to kill Quint happened right after that conversation. Yeah. So here's my question. This could end up being a stupid question, but if if Eleanor was the one to hire Lena, did she send uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus's character to to give her the assignment? Yes, probably. So then, who does Julia Louis Dreyfus work for? Kingpin? Probably herself. She's probably a freelancer. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I just was confused about. I was just thinking about them. Like, wait, how does how does Eleanor being the one that hired Yelena compare with the end credit scene of Black Widow? It just didn't seem to line up for me. But no, I, I that does make sense. And 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 now there's even more uh, mystery to her, considering you know she's also the one that hired John Walker. Yeah, I mean, in the comics, the character that um, she plays. Um, Contessa Valentina Allegra de, de La Fontaine. Um, God, that's a mouthful to say out loud. Yeah, he's um, to say. Is kind of a twisted S.H.I.E.L.D. agent that eventually becomes Madame Hydra. Ew. So she very much, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're playing her off as, as a freelancer that is weeding all of these pseudo superheroes or anti-heroes to eventually form the Thunderbolts. That seems to be the direction that the that her character is going in based off of those that she's interacted with so far. Okay, that's that's very interesting. Definitely gonna get more of that in the future. Mm-hmm. But yeah, over but overall I would say um it, it also, here's another thing that I said. I did kind of predict that uh, Kate would, would join uh, Clint for his Christmas because I said, I said this is going to be like planes, trains, and automobiles where, where th- there's a rough adventure to get home for the holidays, and then the person that ended up causing the main character a lot of problems ended up joining him uh, with his family for, for the holiday. Yes. That, that, literally, Hawkeye is a superhero version of planes, trains, and automobiles, and I love that. Yeah, and yeah, and the show ends off with a couple really nice Easter egg things. I mean, we have the moment of Echo shooting Kingpin, just like in the comics. And because it's a moment that is straight out of the comics, I am ninety nine percent certain that he is not dead and will just be like temporarily blind for a bit, like he was in the comics. After that, wasn't he blind in the Ben Affleck movie? No, for some reason I thought he was. No, he was just. He, he was his powers were more his physical appearance was more accurate in the way that like he was like super strong and more durable there like he is in Hawkeye. But no, he was. In fact, I'm pretty sure the storyline where he gets blinded in the comics had not even happened yet when that movie came out. Because let me look, let me look at this. Because it's it was Spider Man Family Business is where his design from this episode comes from. Um, and that, again, Vincent D'Onofrio said in an interview that he was the one that um, brought up the specific design for Kingpin that's used in this episode because he apparently has had the – he apparently really likes 
the design for the cover for Spider-Man Family Business with Kingpin on it, where he has the red and white Hawaiian shirt with the white sports jacket. That was apparently a decision made by him. And yeah, the, the Spider-Man Family Business comic came out in 2013. So about a decade after the original movie. Gotcha. But yeah, that, that just goes to show more of how much Vincent D'Onofrio is perfect as Kingpin. And already it's hard to imagine him played by anyone else in live action. But yeah, you it's more than just more a than paycheck me. for him. Yeah, and you know that way more than I do. Yeah, no, it's... I mean, like, every actor in Daredevil is amazing. I want to see all of them back. Because every single one of them is fantastic. Um, but it's... It is so good seeing both Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio in the MCU. It's wonderful. And I cannot wait to see what they'll show up in next. I know that we've had rumors that uh, Charlie Cox is going to appear in She-Hulk and Moon Knight and a few other things. Like he, he might even appear in the Echo ser- spinoff series that we're getting off of Hawkeye as well. I'm pretty, it would be weird for Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin not to show up in that too, considering his relationship to Echo. Yes, this is, this is very true. But, also, one but no, though, he's definitely not dead. <laughs> How many different echoes have we covered on Nerdsplosion the last year or so? Because I a feel bunch. like there's a whole bunch of different ones. Yeah. I can think at least three immediately, but yes. Um no, that 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 would obviously seeing more of him and Daredevil would be great because it would help me get introduced more and obviously they're great in their roles. Yeah, absolutely. And the other big kind of like Easter egg thing for those that are huge comic book nerds like me is that you'll recognize the number of the above the shield symbol on the watch that Quint gives Laura because it's the number 19, which in the comics was the number related to Mockingbird, who of course in the comics was a longtime lover of Quint Martin. So it's kind of a neat thing that they're connecting Laura's character basically in a roundabout way saying that she was Mockingbird. Whether or not this was the Bobby Morse version of the characters is to be said because we did have a version of Mockingbird that appeared in Ains of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, so, and I know that Marvel doesn't want to directly say that Ains of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't canon. Um, so, but it's, it's neat to see that they're at least acknowledging um, that relationship from the comics with that moment. That's really neat. Gotcha. But, but no, overall, I really like Hawkeye. Again, like, it was, it was nice and self-contained, and I was initially worried that throwing uh, Yoena in there would make it a little too bloated um, plot-wise, but they were able to connect her role back to the, the overarching plot of Hawkeye and, the, and make her feel like a, a key part of the show with her dynamic with, um, with Harry Steinfeld's Kate Bishop and also her moment with uh, Jeremy Renner's Quint Barden in episode six. So I think overall it was done really well. And I think that outside of, I think of the one and done shows like WandaVision and Falcon Winter Soldier, I think this was the best because of that conciseness, because of how, how much smaller the stakes and overarching plot of Hawkeye was compared to other shows. Yes, I I love the show. Uh, every episode was enjoyable. I've I found a lot of satisfaction within it. There, it was very it was very simple, which I really enjoyed. 
Uh, Loki was obviously not simple, but this was very simple. Uh, there was not an episode that disappointed me. Uh, all the characters were done really well. It's the second great show that Haley Steinfeld has done uh, th- this year, obviously the other being Arcane. Um, but overall, um, the fa- they paid off Yelena and Clint's confrontation on Perfectly, which is honestly the number one thing I wanted to happen the most, and it did. So I'm happy about that, and I'm glad that the last MCU show of 2021 ended off on a great note. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Um, please get the book of Boba Fett now, because I'm very excited for that, and that's all I'll say right now. Yeah. The last show that we have to talk about today is, of course, JoJo's, because Stone Ocean came out at the beginning of December, and we covered the first five episodes the last time we did the podcast, and... We watched episodes six through eight this week, or at least Sean did. I rewatched them because I so far I'm loving Stone Ocean. Uh, we'll talk about episode six first because that one is uh, maybe one of the more controversial episodes of JoJo's. Can, I don't I... know how to feel about having the enemy stand user be someone that is suicidal. And can I be honest? The... I did not like this episode. Like, I like the ideas of the stands, and I like the concepts, but it's just such a, it's such a touchy subject, and I respect them for adapting it, but, like, this definitely was a product of when this was written. <laughs> yeah. There is no way Araki would be able to get away with this plot now. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll be honest, like, episode six and uh, seven and eight I'll happily talk about, but episode six, I would, all I have to say is no, just, it's, like, I get, I get that there's a lot of different ideas, but this one just was not it, like, you, like, I get, it is creative, I will admit that, but is it ethical? No, and, <laughs> and, and having, and having somebody fight by trying to kill themselves, like, it could just be a product of society or maybe my own experiences, but no, I, I actually hated it. Um, the only thing I will ask is what did you think of Hermes's stand? It is really cool. Uh, I do like her sticker stand, and there's a lot of creative stuff they could do with it. Obviously, it was very useful in the following fight, but I really enjoyed her development. I will give the episode that, that I did. Um, I did enjoy her development, but yeah. Yeah. No, Kiss is a cool stand. I like Kiss a lot. But of course, that brings us to episodes seven and eight and the introduction of my second favorite character in Stone Ocean. I think maybe, maybe third. Really? I don't know if I like Jolene more than Foo Fighters or not. But yeah, I love Foo Fighters. She is so much. She, they, I think it's they, they use they, them pronouns in the dub. In the sub, it depends on the form. I believe that after uh, Foo Fighters takes Atro's body, um, Foo Fighters is referred to as she. But for the dub, they decided to um, use they, them pronouns universally for Foo Fighters, which is an interesting decision. But it makes sense because technically Foo Fighters is just a stand and not an actual person. Exactly. So I think they them works really well. So that fight was interesting to say the least. Yeah. Um, what did you think of a colony of kelp? 
or not um, uh, being I have being a, a I have nightmares. The fa- the fact that we saw all those just just like very, like piranha looking kelp, that was horrifying, and I loved that. And the, the whole fight it was. Or sorry, calling me a plankton, not kelp. Plankton, sorry. It's, it's very similar things. Yeah, and like basically seeing like an evil plankton, like calling a plankton, was very creative. It was very scary. It was nightmare inducing. It was also a lot of fun seeing uh, Jolene and uh, Ermes trying to combat that. And I thought, considering that, I loved how they're trying to figure out who the stand user was because that you know that's the whole. Yeah, because we have we have like a a murder mystery inside of our stand fight, which is really fun. Yes, I I love that, and they're and they're just blaming each other, and then you realize that they're all they're all the stand user, which yeah. none of us thought about that. Yeah, that was a wild conclusion. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> That's genius. I, again, like one of the things I love about JoJo's is its unpredictability, and uh, yes, this fight definitely falls into that. Yes, I, my jaw dropped when I realized it was all three. I, I was like, what? How? how how is that possible it, it was it was a twist that i never would have expected and also jolene ermes work work interestingly together it's yeah they have a nice little dynamic yes and this is really the first episode where i can say that where I fully notice like how great Kira Buckland is. Not to say that I didn't in the first five episodes, but I was more focused on the fact that Freaky Jotaro is in Bobo. I was more focused on that. But these two episodes really show just how intelligent and powerful Kira Buckland portrays uh, Jolene. And and part of me makes me want to play Nier Autonoma more after hearing her voice. Because if that's if that's what she does as the main character... Sounds good to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why I say that Kira Buckland is probably my favorite voice actor that, right now, because uh, yeah, she's pretty awesome and about it. Um, I mean, we we talked about how good she is as Beatrice here on the podcast in ReZero. Doesn't sound the same no. at all. No, completely different no, voices. Completely it's, different. It's wild, right? Yes, it is wild. <laughs> yes, no. Like it, it's it like Jolene's voice is even different from the voice that she used for Raimi in Diamond is Unbreakable. Oh yeah, yeah. Forgot about that. So yeah, it's, still very different. <laughs> yeah, Kira Buckland's a crazy good voice actress. She's awesome. Oh yes. Um, but but no, I love this fight against the pirates again because of the murder mystery elements. I love getting to see more of how Hermes uses Kiss. I love the moment where Jolene uses the threads from Stone Free the cross um, the marsh in order to avoid getting hit by Foo Fighters. That is awesome. That's so damn cool. Yes, and the fact that she used all the sweats actually saved her life from getting uh, punched by Foo Fighters. Yeah. That was great. And you know how you know how we you know we've done Easter egg hunts, we've done you know scavenger hunts. They point out something though. You would never suspect to check a tire. Nope. Never, never think to check the tires that of the tractor. Was so damn brilliant. Yes. To put that in a tire, a, not just not just any tire, a freaking tractor tire. I, I, mad props for that. That yeah. that is 
creativity at its best right there. A tractor tire. And yeah. I loved how, Jolene, you said tractor to defeat Foo Fighters. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, I like this fight. It's fun. It, it might not be the best fight in Stone Ocean, but it's just it's enjoyable. And, I mean, it's our trademark. We fight against a, a villain, and then they become our friend afterwards. And we have to have one of those in every season of JoJo's. Well, yeah, because in Golden Wind, it was Bruno, and D.I.U. was Okoyasu. And Rohan. And Rohan. And, and Shigechi. <laughs> it's, and, and Yuya. It's almost every character in D.I.U. <laughs> exactly. And Sergio Scarce is also almost every, almost every character as well. Yeah, it was Kakioi and Ann Palmer up in Stardust Procedures, but DIU definitely has it has it the most. Yes, I mean that's the point where that's why that's a common theme in in Mob Psycho 100 is because it, it's a common thread in DIU. So exactly because because uh, uh, because the big the big the first big fight in Mob Psycho 100 was Terror, who become who becomes arguably the biggest ally of Mob besides Reagan. Yes, absolutely. Um. um so we get to see the face of our priest villain. Yes, we get to see Poochie for the first time. So I was surprised enough that we saw White Snake in episode five, but we get to see our main villain. Like we see his face out in the open at the end of episode eight. That is wild. That's never happened before. Yeah, um, and the fact that the fact that he was referred to as father, I immediately was like, "Oh yeah, the, oh yeah, this is a priest here." And his appearance is interesting. It was like seeing Diallo for the first time. I'm just like, "This is our main villain." Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I buy this. Yeah, but yeah, no, Pucci's cool. He's very, he's very Kiro esque personality wise, which is really exciting. Yeah, and honestly, I I can't wait I can't wait to get more of him. I can't wait to see, you know, because we're obviously probably gonna get his backstory. That that might that will be a legendary episode or two, and I'm I just want to learn more about him. He's perhaps the most interesting villain we may have in all of JoJo's. Because Dio is very is very surface level. We kn- but I mean that's what makes Dio great. He's very simple. We know what we get with Dio from the yeah. Story. He's he's evil because he wants power and greed and, and likes being evil for evil's sake. He's yeah. fun, and and he wears his personality on his sleeve. I think that JoJo's most interesting villains are the ones that hide their ulterior motives, either behind, usually behind their own personal quest. In the case of Pucci, it hasn't really been established yet, but he very obviously wants Jotaro's memories for some reason because he didn't hide them in the same place as Star Platinum. They must be important. For what we don't know, but the the fact that, you know, he's a priest of Dio and the fact that he wants Jotaro's memories, it makes me... And the fact that how did he end up as a as a priest in this specific prison? Like I like this is the villain that I I have so many questions about, and I cannot wait to. Well, to I mean, for him to have been a follower of Dio, he would have had to have been a follower of Dio in the eighties when he was still alive. 
So he's had two decades to think this plan through if he specifically wanted Jotaro's memories. Yes, but a priest in a prison, specifically this prison, how did he get to this conclusion? I want well, to I mean, he probably knew that Jotaro's family lived in Florida. He seems like a pretty intelligent guy. This is true. And he obviously has resources and power through his connection that he had with Dio. So he didn't connect. I think it's pretty easy to connect the dots from there. We may not know the exact, like, how or why, but well, that's there's, there's the assumptions that can be made. Well, I do want to know the how or the why. But, but no, I really like Pucci as a villain. I, I need to see more. That's my big thing. Um, I've seen the first horror of Stone Ocean already. I still need to see more of him. Because he, he seems good, but I don't know. I need to see more. Because I, I need to know how the rest of the story will handle his character. But so far, he definitely falls under uh, the same categories as all the other JoJo villains, where JoJo has consistently good villains, and Pucci is no exception to that. Yes, I would agree. Overall, great fight with Foo Fighters, and I'm looking forward to the next couple episodes. Yeah, I believe that... I think that we have a single episode fight next for episode nine, and then we have a three-episode arc after that. Ooh. So, because we have the we have a team up with Hermes, Jolene, and Foo Fighters in the next episode, and then we have the introduction to the weather report after that. So, oh, I'm very excited for that. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, so we might just cover the next episode by itself the next time we record, and then save episodes nine or episodes ten through twelve to do together. Sounds good to me. Sounds but no, like overall, it, like Stone Ocean's good. Like I, and I can see why the manga wasn't well liked because there are definitely elements of these fights that probably did not translate well on the page that work much better in animation and, and in motion. But it kind of has the thing where when I first watched Golden Wind where I was like, how is it possible for people not to like this? This is good. What is wrong with, with JoJo fans that they don't like Stone Ocean? <laughs> um, so I may have to go back and look at the manga to see why. But I, I imagine that's just that when it was originally translated in English, it wasn't translated all that well. And the art might have been hard to follow like it was in Golden Wind. It is possible, but outside of episode six, I'm love. I've loved every episode so far, and Jolene is 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 already a great protagonist, and the Joe Bros are good so far as well. Yeah. Um, are you excited to see more of Foo Fighters? Yes, I am. Because, because yeah, I think that. I mean, you can probably imagine it just from the end of, of episode eight, but yeah, she kind of fulfills the Okuyasu of the group like Eskin character traits where she's like the the wild the, the idiot wild card of the group. Yeah. Um it, there's gonna be a lot of crazy moments and I don't know what to expect. And that's a good thing. Because mm-hmm. it's JoJo's. Wouldn't be JoJo's if things made sense. This is true. <laughs> but no, and of course with that that will do it for this week's episode of the podcast. Sean, what do you have coming up on the site? All right, so 
now that the holidays are wrapping up and without school, I'm able to pump out more content. I was able to, myself, Cameron and Brendan Martin were able to cover the Jerry Colangio Classic in Phoenix. Uh, all the content for there is up, and I still have one more article from them and doing a player profile on said classic. Um, and one thing I will say is that there's going to be a little bit of a change uh, with the site again. Um, we were kind of experimenting whether we would go back to WordPress to categorize everything, but we decided that Substack would be the best going forward. And we're going to try to implement YouTube more often. So this podcast could possibly be a YouTube thing going forward. So yeah, I mean, possible. it'll still go up on their site and on Spotify as audio files. But if you like seeing our faces, there is a potential you might see our faces on YouTube, which is exciting. Yes. It'll also make the editing a little easier for me because I won't have to convert files as much. Yes, this is true. So look forward to that possibly being happened. I don't know when that would happen. Maybe not till January. but it is Yeah, probably of- January at the earliest. But I would say at the latest, maybe maybe like February or March. It really just depends on how fast we get everything figured out. Agreed. But as far as written content, I, ha- I have a lot of stuff that I'm going to do. I'm going to... Uh, first of all, I since I have since I have the time to do so, I will actually put out a review of Hawkeye. Yeah, um, that's good. Yes. I have other I have too many other things to review anyway. So I don't know if I'd be able to get to it. <laughs> yes, so I I will I will review Hawkeye, and then I'm also gonna finally be able to get to my two video game reviews that I need to do, which is Spider Man Miles Morales and also Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Trials and Tribulations. And also, I'm hoping by the end of the year, I have I get two album reviews I need to get done done. Uh, Coldplay's new album, Music of the Spheres, which is great. And also, One Republic's new album, Human. I hope to review those two things by the end of the year. So that is my current agenda. Also, uh, the as we're recording this, the most recent thing I wrote was a takeaway from the highly controversial ending of the Formula One season. So check that out. I have a lot to say about that and i'm still broken by what happened so be sure to check that out yeah um for me i of course recently put out my review for spider-man no way home so if you uh skipped our spoiler filled discussion because you didn't you haven't seen the movie yet you can go read my article because i actually didn't talk about spoilers at all which was very difficult for me (laughs) um but i'm impressed with how spoiler free i was able to keep that article despite how much i talked I wrote in it. I think it was over, ended up being over a thousand words, but that's just because of how packed that movie was. Um, of course, upcoming on the site, I'm, I believe I have my review for everyone's favorite sexy vampire anime, The Case Study of Vanitas, which with all the vampire anime we got this year, was easily the one that stood out the most and will probably be in my top five anime of the year by the time I make my list, which probably will be I think as early as maybe January, but I would think that probably would come out more like February because of everything getting hit by holiday delays. Um, The second core of 86 isn't even going to continue airing until March, which is wild because of all the delays it's been hit with. But so you can expect that. I plan on also doing a why you should watch for my next wife as a villainess. And I also might do a Why You Should Watch article um, for this new anime that I started watching this week because the second season is being ADR directed by Caitlin Glass. And you know 
And if anyone knows me, you know that that makes it so that I watch it because I love her direction and sh and everything she's done has been amazing. Um, and that show is, of course, the um, a restaurant to another world. And that show is literally about like race, like fantasy characters finding door magical doorways that take them to a restaurant in Tokyo. Come again. It's it's yeah it's fantastic it's a reverse isekai it's fantastic. Sounds interesting. Yeah, it's it's very fun and wholesome, and almost every episode is focused on the the various dishes that the chef prepares for his customers. Considering that they aren't, most of them are not human. <laughs> interesting. And the chef is voiced by Chris Sabat, so. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just it's such a novelty, and and yeah, the voice cast has such amazing voices as J. Michael Tatum and Jad Saxton in it. So delicious. Yeah, it's just that. it's wonderful. It's and it's just so much fun. I cannot recommend it enough. If you need like just a a solid, just wholesome anime that you don't really have to think too much while watching, you just sit down and enjoy. It's perfect for that. Sounds like it. And the second season is currently airing, which is why I'm getting caught up. Sounds like a good time. Yeah. Um, I also will hopefully have a review out for the first issue of the Batgirls comic, which recently was released by DC last week. I'm a little behind on all my comic book reading. That's just how it is, because I've, I've kind of been wanting to sit back and actually just enjoy the comics I've been reading, which is why I've been reviewing too many. Um, I did review the eighth issue of By the Horns, but that was... That was mainly because that comic gets sent to me for free to review, and I'm loving it. I love talking with the creators, and we have a nice little friendship on Twitter. So I, I like handling that stuff with a lot of care, and, and I love hand, um, covering that comic. And uh, the whole thing is currently out digitally, so like I can't recommend reading by the horns enough. It's probably one of the best um, non-Marvel or DC comics that has come out in the last year. Um, and the trade for it but that will have the first eight issues is releasing in comic bookstores and bookstores and online everywhere in February. So I highly recommend pre-ordering it um, because, again, it's one of the best comics that came out this year. Cannot recommend it enough. But going back to Batgirls, it's, uh, it's the first time that we've had every single iteration of Batgirl in a comic at one time before, and it's being handled by... Um, the writers that recently um, wrote those characters for the main Batman comic. So um, for anyone that is a fan of Barbara Gordon, Stephanie Brown, and Cassandra Kane, or all three like me, it's like a nice little Christmas gift. So I'm excited to cover that. But overall, I think that's all we're covering. Um, of course, if you liked listening to us talk about nerd stuff on the podcast, please subscribe to us on The Rich Report so you get emails about when our podcast goes up. Or if you're listening to us on Spotify, you can follow us on Spotify so you can get notified when our new episodes go up there. Uh, we usually release episodes every weekend, although we didn't do one last week because Sean wasn't able to record. Sorry, I was kind of celebrating Christmas. <laughs> that just, that'd be how it'd be, you know? But... Yes. But no, hopefully from here on out we'll have at least a consistent schedule because 
entertainment doesn't ever really stop, and we still have all Stone Ocean to cover, never. and Book of Boba Fett comes out next week, and we'll, of course, be covering that weekly. Yeah. So, so yeah, um, with Hawkeye over, we still have stuff to cover. Um, so I know that for the next two weeks, we'll be covering Stone Ocean. I, I believe that Boba, Book of Boba Fett's going to be nine episodes, from what I've heard. Uh, so that's exciting. Um, on top of the fact that, Sean, you have access to HBO Max, right? Yes, I do. So you're going to watch The Matrix Resurrections, right? Do I have to? I mean, I'm watching it. And you should, too, so we can cover it on the podcast. I suppose I could if you gave me a due date. Uh, I mean, I'll probably watch it while I'm in Colorado. So I would say, like, maybe in two weeks. Okay. We might cover it. It'll be like after, it'll probably be like the week and after I watch it, whatever that is. Okay. Um, so not not that soon. <laughs> okay, I thought you were gonna tell me to watch it like in two days. I'm like, hold on. No, no. Like, I mean, the next time we would record would be like a week from now. <laughs> yes. But yes, no, I, I, I can do that. I have seen I have seen the first Matrix film and I know what happens in the second and third ones, so Well you you haven't seen the second and third ones? No. Why why oh would I Oh my god, dude. Oh okay, look. I know what people say about reload and re- and revolutions. But I actually think they're really solid movies. Are they as good as the first? Absolutely not. Are they still very solid? Though. Yes. I do highly know what recommend. happens in them. But yeah, but you should watch them because like they're actually really en- enjoyable movies to watch. Okay. <laughs> I might. Yeah. Highly re- I mean, highly recommend watching them. <laughs> if anyone hasn't seen The Matrix, you probably should watch The Matrix. <laughs> pretty pretty like obvious statement is obvious moment. But yeah. yes, Reloading and Revolutions are solid movies, and they're some of the most interesting blockbusters ever made. That's, I can agree with that. Yeah. But, but no, that'll do it for this week's episode of the podcast. I, like, as always, thank you all for listening, and have a great rest of your day.